You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Andrew Child, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's description. Today's episode is going to focus on Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore. Here with me right now, I've got Richard Holmes, who is a fixture of the New York Gilbert and Sullivan players for 40 years. He recently performed HMS Pinafore's Captain Corcoran for the 215th time and has earned kudos in 31 principal roles in all 13 Savoy operas across the United States and England. He made his stage debut in the Metropolitan Opera Children's Chorus, and his extraordinary half-century career at the Met was recently highlighted in the acclaimed film The Opera House. He has additionally played 160 major roles at such venues as Glimmerglass Opera, Chicago Opera Theater, Virginia Opera, countless others, and soloed at major festivals across Europe and Russia. Hello, Richard. How are you doing? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm super excited to chat with you about Pinafore. So because of the title of the book and thus the title of the podcast, I want to just start by having you sort of summarize for our listeners what makes HMS Pinafore a key musical. Well, uh, in my opinion, it's the it's the beginning of even though it was a British musical, obviously a British um, comic opera. It was, uh, on the other hand, it was it started the ball rolling for the American musical theater. As far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm I'm sure there are people who are more expert on what uh, was being written in America in the 1850s or 1860s, but there was such a huge craze for Pinafore when it came over here. Uh, it was it, it actually made Gilbert and Sullivan into world stars. And uh, I think that it seemed to me that it had a level of creative genius in it and a level of proficiency mm. that had never been seen theretofore but before that time in uh, in an American piece or in a place uh, piece playing in America. And mm. so it created a demand and an expectation for a higher level, uh, more interesting plots, not just um, 
not just a silly plot, not the songs were the songs have an, uh, a classical operatic quality to some of them, and then a very mm -hmm. lively, uh, hummable quality to other ones. And uh, I think that the more that that happened, um, uh, then the audiences, it caught on like wildfire here. And so the audiences were became enamored of this. And from this, mm. you know, it's not that there was no talent in America, it was that there was no no need for it at that point. There were people weren't asking for this kind of a show. Mm. And suddenly with with the Gilbert and Sullivan's, which all became popular in the United States, um, there wasn't, it was, I'm sure American composers, young American composers at that time were saying, well, why don't I try my hand at this? And from this grew, you know, the Victor Herberts and then, and then eventually the Kearns and Gershwins and things like that. Mm. So. so would you say that, you know, when you talk about HMS Pinafore, you talk about this artistic superiority, you talk about this higher level of art, would you put Pinafore on a level above other Gilbert and Sullivan pieces, either that predate it or those that followed it? Well, it's it it's difficult to say that. I it's not it it is not for me the absolute pinnacle of what they wrote, but that doesn't okay. mean that it's not at a very high level. It's just that being that it was early in their collaboration, I think both of them developed as writers a little bit as it went along, mm -hmm. um, as their careers uh, jointly went along. But it is it is very high up there because the thing is, is that Gilbert, uh, it, it combines Gilbert's wonderful wit and uh, and his uh, marvelous sense of humor and absurdity, too, There's mm. a, uh, which is a very, very, very strong part of Gilbert's um uh, writing of uh, the makeup of all of his writing is is a sense of uh, something being either turned on its head or um, taken to its ridiculous extreme. Sullivan, of course, was an aspiring classical composer, and he was a classical composer. He composed uh, a great many wonderful classical works, many of which are only being really rediscovered now in in our time. But um, he had he had the chops, so to speak, to write well, well beyond one one or two chords per song. And right. um, so musically, um, I, I would always I always feel that Pinafore is in rather in primary colors. It is not the most adventurous. Later on, he became more adventurous in his style, but it's an extremely tuneful piece. And the, for example, the two finales, well, especially the first act finale, is developed with uh, uh, little bits of sections that will that will recur, and that are not just. Uh, and now I'll sing a tune for two minutes, and that's right. it. It's it's a it's really wonderfully developed piece. So there was. Um, it is. It's one of the one of the great favorites. It's one of the the top three favorites. The top three being the Pirates of Penzance, the Mikado, and and HMS Pinafore, and they've never lost their popularity, uh, and it's it's well up there in terms of creativity. Um, whether you find it the absolute top or maybe the third from the top is your own opinion. You know, I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah, everybody looks for slightly different things. So it's like it's like saying, you know, there are there are people who feel that. Uh, um, say Allegro was because it was they won't necessarily say it was a better work than Oklahoma, but it was perhaps a more adventurous work than Oklahoma. Mm. 
you know so uh, uh, and uh, the same thing with uh, with uh, Gilbert and Sullivan Pinafore is it's a great I find it's a great starter show to okay. uh, to introduce people to Gilbert and Sullivan too it uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome it's about mm-hmm. runs just a little over two hours and uh, in that time it packs a good deal uh, a good deal of parody thought humor and uh, absolutely gorgeous music so so when you say that this would be like a good a starter show the introduction for you what do you think that the Gilbert and Sullivan aficionado the fanatic the uh, avid audience member what are they building up to what is their allegro um well i mean the thing is is that probably for me the the height of their collaboration and many many people agree with me is Iolanthe, which is like oh. right about midway in their in their works um it's because it's hauntingly beautiful it's got a great mm. deal more heart than some of the other ones pinafore on the, i will say i mean it does have um this is one of the things that perhaps appealed to audiences was that it has a real situation with the lovers where they are really star-crossed lovers who don't seem like as if they're going to get together. And it it seems like it's going to be a terrible, terrible shame, you know? So, and um, Josephine, the heroine has a, uh, a real predicament that she's dealing with in act two, which comes, uh, comes to a a climax in, in her big, um, big aria. Uh, I would say that, on an even higher level artistically is Iolanthe because the music is um, uh, less basic, less uh, more, more harmonically developed. Um, uh, Sullivan's use of themes uh, of small themes that recur is uh, more sophisticated Mm -hmm. and Gilbert's uh, humor and wit are at their very, very peak. Um, They went on, they tried Uh, Yeoman of the Guard, I think is, is probably the one that is, the closest to trying for something a little grander, a little more serious in tone. Mm. And um, for many people, it's their favorite. It's not quite for me, but it's not that I don't like it. It's just, I I like Iolanti better, so. (laughs) Okay, and as a performer, would you say, are you drawn more to the big three? Are you drawn more to HMS Pinafore? Well, or... I, I I think it's interesting when you if you do I've done, um, you know I performed Gilbert and Sullivan for forty plus years actually right. starting from the very first Gilbert and Sullivan I did was was when I was still in high school and then, so it was fifty years ago. Wow! Um, but that was so it's a it's been a long time. You after a while you you know as with Ed, anything you you tend to get a little bit jaded with the ones that you do more frequently. You know, okay. I, mean, I don't yeah. mean to be ungrateful, but uh, you know, but there, but it is, it does happen. I'm sure that that happens with Broadway performers like, Oh, another mm. gypsy, you know, so uh, something right. Like that. Right. Um, for, for me, um, I personally, it's the show I've done the most in Gilbert and Sullivan and I never get tired of it. It's the one that I never get tired of. Mm. Um I love doing some of the ones that are less frequently done for that reason, because they're, they're fresher, you know, they're okay. just, you know, but with Pinafore, I've had a lot of time to think over, especially the character of Captain Corcoran, which I've done a lot. Mm. And he's become a real person to me. And I see new facets in him and new sides in him every time I do it. So, so what are the moments 
in the libretto for Captain Corcoran that you know audiences are going to love? What are the moments that you look forward to delivering time and again? Well, uh, it's there's a very wonderful opening song, I Am the Captain of the Pinafore. It's mm-hmm. a great entrance song, very bright and very cheery and everything like that. Uh, and um, it's, <laughs> frankly, it's not that difficult to sing i mean it's not it's not you know it's it's very nice if you're if you're like um getting your nerves under control or anything like that and you just go out there and do it and um it it always gets a nice hand um Mm. uh for the other characters the other characters have them too sir joseph has when i was a lad his story song where he tells about his career and his rise to his uh, position of prominence and uh, that always goes down very well with the with the audiences. Uh, probably the height for everybody, uh, all three performers in it, and um, the audience as well is the Bell Trio. Uh, <clears throat> never mind the why and wherefore in Act Two. Pardon me. <clears throat> and um, it's um, uh, because the it comes just at the right time in the show, and mm-hmm. the, the show has been. Act two is a little starts to get a little bit dark and a little bit worrisome in terms of the plot, mm-hmm. but it's not doesn't go on for very long. But it's just one of those things like, hmm, how is this going to work out? Everything seems to work out, and then Sir Joseph gets to be usually very usually gets to do a lot of physical comedy in that number. It's a very very infectious tune. You once you hear it, you can't stop hearing it, you know. And right. uh, so uh, that's that's really a great number that uh, you know always catches the audience. And and the soprano too in her big what's called the Shana, uh, the hours creep on a pace. That's a that's a full operatic aria. So if you have, mm. I've had some many wonderful Josephines that I've performed with, who have marvelous voices and. Um, What's great about that is, is that they can really shine there and they can bring down the house with this number. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I thought was so interesting in the chapter that uh, you and Rupert wrote is talking about this lack of copyright restrictions, which allowed mm-hmm. Pinafore to become so popular in the United States. So sort of thinking about the moments that you know in a contemporary sense are those big audience pleasing moments, those big, joyful, exciting, thrilling moments. Mm-hmm. Do you think that when this show first premiered in America, were audiences latching on to those same moments? I think so. Uh, I, I, I'm almost old enough to know. <laughs> but, uh, I, I wish I had been there, but uh, no, but I, I can't imagine that, that they didn't love all of those moments. Uh, certainly, there you know, there's the ca- big catchphrase in um, HMS Pinafore uh, where he says, uh, "I'm never, never sick at sea." What and the chorus says, "What never? No, never," says the captain. "What never?" says the uh, chorus. Well, hardly ever, and uh, that that swept not just England but the United States. As a matter of fact, I think there was one there one newspaper editor who had to forbid his writers from using that the hardly ever uh, catchphrase uh, in their <laughs> writing because it was used so much. So that clearly was one of them. Uh, the bell song has always, I, I've literally never seen a performance at, outside of my own that I've been in. I've never seen a performance where the bell trio in act two didn't fail to 
go off like a firecracker. It's mm. just one of those foolproof numbers. You you really have to work hard to kill it. Right. So, uh, you know. Cool. And uh, things like I'm called Little Buttercup, which don't bring down the house. It's a very gentle number, actually. It's a lovely, lovely waltz song. But, you know, it's a, it's a great, great little tune there. And it comes, you know, within the first five minutes of the show. And, uh, you know, it's one of those ones where the audience just sits back and relaxes and said, says, oh, isn't that lovely? You know, isn't mm-hmm. that great? And uh, and from then on, the uh, defenses of the audience are down. They're, they're, they're uh, up to taking it. I'm sure that the audiences back in those days were, were going crazy for all of those numbers. Mm-hmm. I really do. And you feel like when you're in the audience as well are you still getting wrapped up in the same way or your defense is down or are you a little bit more reserved well of course i'm sitting there i'm i'm hypercritical at this point <laughs> you know, i'm saying hmm, she didn't sing that very well no uh <laughs> no, no the thing is is that uh usually as each character is introduced you get to know the personality of the singer too or the performer rather and uh and you start saying oh i'm going to love that that little bit with them when when sir joseph comes on you're looking mm-hmm. for what he's going to bring to that that character and uh, the uh, snobbish and, uh, you know, very uh, self-righteous character that he is. Um, and uh, so I would say I do, yes, honestly. And I look forward to if the Bell Trio, every production that you do has different, um, it's, it's a big encore number. It usually has at least a couple of encores to it. Um, and um, the encores are part of the fun where, the, where something weird goes wrong. Sir Joseph falls overboard uh, off the ship or something like that. And so uh, it's kind of like, okay, now what are they going to do with this? You know, so, mm. so it's great fun. So these are works that you obviously know inside and out, left and right. What draws you as a performer to keep coming back to the works of Gilbert and Sullivan? I, I, just adore them and the reason i do is is that it's it's i've always wanted to be a comedian i've always wanted to to make people laugh mm. and uh, the scripts themselves uh leaving the songs aside are wonderfully funny i can you can you know, you. I know that I'm making the audience enjoy themselves, or I hope that I'm making the audience right. enjoy themselves. We all hope. And uh, but on the other hand, you actually get to sing something, and not just sing any old little little nothing song. These are some of them are absolutely beautiful. Um, I've always said that for the captain, um, I, I've done Sir Joseph as well, but I've done the captain much more. For the mm-hmm. captain, uh, he begins Act Two with a song called "Fair Moon," which is as beautiful as anything in the in nineteenth-century Italian opera. It is a, a mm. beautiful uh, legato song to sing a, a serenade to the moon, um, uh, telling his troubles to the moon, and it's it's heaven. Now you know in opera, uh, in grand opera, for example, you don't sometimes get to be funny. On the other hand, uh, in in some musicals, you don't get to sing anything that where you feel you're exercising your voice. And so as a performer, I love that combination. I love being able to make people 
uh, get into you know a, a romantic mood or a, a, a sentimental mood, but also to make them laugh. And I think that for performers, the, these are just these works are just heaven because they they give you so many different opportunities. Uh, to, and nowadays you you get to dance in them. I'm not a particularly great dancer, <laughs> but but I mean there are people who who do tremendous amounts of dancing in these things too. So it's um, it's 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 such an amalgam of the, of, um, of the arts, you know, of what you want to do as a performer. And uh, it's like, why, why does one want to go into music theater? You know, well, I mean, you can break somebody's heart, you can touch somebody, you can also make them laugh, and you can make, make people say, God, what a beautiful tune, or what a beautiful voice that is. And, uh, you know, that's, I'm sure that's what Broadway people go into it for, you know, so. Right. No, it's so funny. The, um, the next episode after this one in the podcast, um, mm-hmm. we'll be talking about The Merry Widow. Oh, and yes. Mm-hmm. So it's exactly what you're talking about, this idea that, yes, it's musical comedy. Yes, you're going to laugh. But the score is this rich, oh. beautiful sound. I've done quite a few Merry Widows, too. So I, I feel just it's a privilege to get to do this, that kind of work. It really is because you're not shortchanging either the audience or yourself as a performer, if that is what you like to do. I mean, if Mm. you, if you are purely a comedian, then, but there are roles in Gilbert and Sullivan that are purely comic where, where the vocal, the great vocal quality doesn't matter so much. As a matter of fact, sometimes if you sing them with too much of a great vocal quality, it, it tends to get in the way. It sounds it, it, it will, first of all, the words sometimes aren't quite as forward and as clear. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is that sometimes if, if the audience is sitting there saying, boy, that guy's got a great voice. What's he doing doing this comedy, comic comic role? Mm. You know, it's why is he, uh, you know, concentrating? That that shouldn't be in the audience's mind. That shouldn't that thought should never cross their mind. You know, okay. they should just be concentrating entirely on the character. So um, uh, but but really, you there's something for everybody in Gilbert and Sullivan, both as a performer and, and I think I think as an audience. Yeah, no, I definitely have to agree with you on that. I'm also just happen to be a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan. Um, But I'm wondering now, do you think that there are, do we have Gilbert and Sullivan's working today who are kind of duly prioritizing this grand, beautiful sound, but are also really getting to the heart of things and making us laugh? Do we have that? Well, I think, I think so. Although I think, I think the trend um, in, uh, I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate anything, but mm-hmm. I think the trend in recent years has been to darker and darker musicals. Uh, I, I think that, that the lighthearted musical that, that makes, makes one laugh, um, that first and foremost makes one laugh mm. is a little bit out of fashion right now. Not to say that there's no humor in, in, uh, today's musicals, but they become more as the concept musical, I think has developed. This is to, Purely my own opinion, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, but um, I, I think actually, I think my brother actually achieved that very well in The Mystery of Edwin Drood. It's mm. a very, very high level of music uh, with an enormous amount of um, wonderful rhyme and and words and great laughs in it too. Mm. Uh, and uh, so it it depends on the combination of, of who's doing it. I, I'm sure there are others, certainly, certainly you know, 
I, it's not like I sat there stone faced during a little night music or something like that. I laughed right. all the way through that, but the level of music there is so brilliantly high and the level of the words mm. is, is brilliantly high too. So, you know, do you think that were Gilbert and Sullivan alive now looking at current trends? Um, do you think they'd be meeting this same level of success? Um, Probably, yes. I mean, it's always dangerous to look into the future and say, well, 100 years from now, they would be doing this. Mm. Uh, but both of them did evolve. Sullivan, I would say more than Gilbert, perhaps. Um, this composer, and he was a success at it. But I think more and more he wanted to let the music, you know, have free reign. Mm. Whereas... Um, writing to Gilbert's plots, which are a little bit on the absurd side at times. <laughs> um, and they certainly always usually have an absurd deus ex machina at the end of the show. Um, uh, may have hampered him a little bit in that aspect. Um, but, uh, but he did it so brilliantly that, you know, who can complain? Um, Gilbert actually was evolving too in that Oddly enough, the very last thing that he wrote just before that was produced, that uh, produced just before his death, was a, a serious and I believe one character play that was very Dickensian in terms of uh, it was about a, an imprisoned man who was on like death row in England. It's mm. called The Hooligan. And uh, it was very dark and very serious. And uh, uh, how he had been how this character had been pushed into a life of crime through a childhood of poverty. And so I always think, I look at that and I say, hmm, you know, I wonder, it's hard to sort of imagine Gilbert not tickling everybody's ribs. Right. But on the other hand, he might have evolved as well, too. He clearly, he felt his more serious plays, this plays that had a little bit more either romantic or paradistic side to them were going to be the ones that were going to remain and the, uh, in, in the future. And he tended to th think that the Gilbert and Sullivan, the, the Savoy operas were, as they're called, were probably just of their time and were going to go away. So, um, which is, you know, certainly not the truth. Um, I have a feeling he would have, it, it's interesting. He's, they're both, Gilbert and Sullivan, they're such Victorian characters. They lived in such a Victorian world. It's hard to imagine them dealing with the modern world and its rudeness and its uh, lack of politeness. But on the other hand, had they lived another hundred years, there would have been, they would have evolved too, no doubt. So, uh, so I think that they would have both been writing. I think Sullivan was getting more and more tired of writing light opera. And I think mm. he would have written more operas, okay. um, but um, uh, or more or perhaps libretti uh, for operettas that had a more serious bent to them. Um, and Gilbert, I don't know. I really, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I just can't imagine him ever being. Uh, but this I'll say about Gilbert. Gilbert skewered. The, um, uh, the, the follies of his, of his time and of his day. Mm -hmm. uh, and surely God knows there's enough to skewer nowadays politically right. and uh, socially. And most, many of his, many of the Savoy operas and, and some of his other ones 
his plays, his straight plays, are um, absolutely skewer the mores of the day. And um, it just seems to me that he would have had a boundless field for uh, 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 targets nowadays to write things. So uh, he would have been writing that kind of work, I think, satirical works. Oh, that makes that makes sense, because they are when you start looking at them beyond a surface level, these pieces, even the Savoy ones, you know, they are kind of cutting. They are a little vicious, you know. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And the thing is, is that I think one of the reasons they have survived and still thrive in this time, uh, even though they were they're very, very Victorian works in their own way, is, is that uh, the things that they're skewering for the most part don't go away. Um, mm. You know, uh, people who were rise to a position like Sir Joseph in Pinafore with no qualifications. Well, we see that in our day. I mean, you know, didn't we didn't we just have a, uh, you know, housing housing secretary who you know wasn't had no knowledge of housing or something right. like that, right? And various things. I mean, it would it's perfect because it's exactly what Gilbert wrote, and uh, so those things are universal. Pomposity is universal. Stupidity is universal. Sadly, right. and mm. uh, and so even though uh, even though perhaps the specific instances have have gone away. Um, there, there's always there's always something there to, to skewer. Uh, on um, in London, if you there's a very small memorial to Gilbert, right on the Thames at um, Hungerford uh, Bridge, which uh, yeah. crosses the Thames, and uh, it's very near the theatre district. So I see it like whenever I go to London, I see it every day, and it, it says uh, the it's a plaque with Gilbert's um, you know. Uh, uh, carved engraving of, of Gilbert and the uh, quote on it is um, his foe was folly and his weapon wit and I think that sums him up perfectly he was he was there to puncture the balloons of people who did loony things without thinking them through um, you know and he was he he would tilt those windmills so I think that he was essentially that's what modern writers do too you know mm. So up next, I'm chatting with Rupert Holmes, who is the first person in Broadway history to solely win Tony Awards as author, composer, and lyricist of a musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which also won the Tony for Best Musical. Add Identical Drama Desk Awards, plus their additional category for Best Orchestration. He received the Best Book Drama Desk Award for Curtains and Tony nominations for Book and Additional Lyrics. For Say Goodnight Gracie, he received a Tony Best Play nomination and won Lort's National Broadway Theater Award. Twice a recipient of MWA's Edgar Award, his novels are Where the Truth Lies, Swing, and The McMaster's Guide to Homicide. For TV, he is the creator and writer of AMC's Remember When. Welcome, Rupert, and thanks for chatting with me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right, so we are going to be talking a little bit about Gilbert and Sullivan, specifically HMS Pinafore, and I'm really interested to hear about how HMS Pinafore, how Gilbert and Sullivan's work influenced you and your own work, but... I'm kind of starting asking every guest uh, to tell me a little bit about what makes HMS Pinafore a key 
musical? Why do we want to write about this? Why do we still care about this show? Why is this still being done? So I'd love to know, could you sort of highlight any thoughts you have along those lines for me? Well, I, I there's a myriad reasons. The first that springs to mind when you ask the question is the fact that um, it, it was one of the first works to say that a silly subject could be tackled in a in a beautiful way mm. in other words um there's something marvelous about the fact that the entire show hangs on the silliest of premises the way a monty python routine would hang on such a premise and yet they are true to the spirit of opera they considered themselves to be writing operas they didn't mm. call them operettas and you have so you what you have is completely giddy entertainment a delight to anyone easy to understand simple issues you you don't have to you don't need a, um, a playbill to figure out who's who in the story mm. and and remember this is their first complete opera that they ever wrote the major length opera two-act opera mm. and uh, and yet it's instantly um easy on the uh, on the um easy to take in and okay. yet the score is would pass for a distinguished score were not the lyrics so daft at times <laughs> in other words sullivan and 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 sort of that's the premise of any good farce mm -hmm. uh, is that you take a ridiculous premise you know fado would have a premise like a man has accidentally married his wife's mother and not his the woman who's supposed to be his wife mm -hmm. but then you must follow it with absolute logic and, and be, stay true to it. Don't just say, well, it's a farce, so nothing matters. And so the songs, the music that, that, that Sullivan composed for HMS Pinafore mm -hmm. and the lyrics that Gilbert wrote, when they were matters of passion, they, can pass for, they could pass for the most passionate songs uh, that were being sung at that time in serious stories. So there's something about having dessert and your, um, and your cabbage in the same course mm. um that makes it very palatable and I, I am i was really astounded in researching it I, I mean i always knew it was one of their two three most um famous most performed most beloved works mm -hmm. uh, but i didn't understand until i started researching um for the for you know 50 major musicals uh, how out of control popular it was in the in the united states it was okay. instantly popular and mm. suddenly you had and we 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 touch upon this in 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 our chapter mm -hmm. my brother and i um you had countless productions all pirated by the way none, none of them right. paying gilbert sullivan a penny you know 15 productions within a couple of city blocks wow. can you imagine if west side story opened and then there were 14 more west side stories running right. on the west side right. <laughs> uh, so so it's um so it, it, it's a very easy shoehorn into a wonderful world of operetta and opera and soon to be musical theater, musical comedy. Well, mm. we like to think of as musical comedy. Okay. Um, um, you know, we we've, we've forget that long before we had um, this, this wonderful term of musical theater, which I function in. Right. Um, it was called musical comedy. Right. And, 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 and I, I, you know, when you had a tragedy um, and it opened as a musical, I guess they just said musical, but, but pretty mm. much, pretty much people would say, I'm going to New York. I want to take it in a musical comedy. Well, mm. here was, a shoe, here is the easiest uh, entry level 
into for its time, um, uh, which is the end, uh, the last decades of the 1800s, mm -hmm. easy entry level into something that people sometimes go to and sit very seriously and say, well, I take some opera every week. You know, uh -huh. this wasn't medicine. This was soda pop. So okay. uh, 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 I think that may be one of the reasons why it's so significant. It showed people that you can walk into a into something resembling a, a formal theater mm -hmm. and um, hear music of uh, 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 that is truly intelligently and, uh, uh, and composed and uh, distinguished in every way. This is the same composer who wrote the um, the hymn "Onward, Christian Soldiers." Mm. So, you know, how much more respectable uh, respectable can you get? Right. Uh, but it said you can walk into a theater, sit down, not worry about your job or the worries of the world and be completely entertained. And yet at the same time, your intelligence will never be underestimated. Mm. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So let's talk a little bit about what that legacy does for for you and for your compatriots the contemporary or the more contemporary uh musical theater writers so you've got this very silly idea you've got it, let's do a musical based on an unfinished charles dickens story right but yeah. then you write these beautiful songs the writing on the wall the moonfall song you know all these songs yeah. uh yeah, can you talk a little bit about how your experiences with your familiarity with Gilbert and Sullivan informed your process, maybe specifically in creating the mystery of Edwin Drood? Well, yes, uh, there were, and it's interesting because so many Gilbert and Sullivan thoughts occurred to me as I began to write the work. Mm -hmm. uh, when I originally started to write the mystery of Edwin Drood, um, it's it's as somber. It's as dark a novel as Dickens ever wrote. Mm. And, uh, and I found myself kind of being crushed by the weight of it because okay. it was so dark. I, I couldn't figure out any way that anyone could enjoy themselves within the story. It was just so, I mean, if you want to see, um, you know, a, a, a horror story, uh, it would work just fine. Mm. But I thought this is, this is unnatural. It's un, it's the it is the human condition to try to make jokes in rough situations. I always say that right. um, tragedy is what we inherit as human beings. Our lives are inherently tragic um, because 
one way or the other, it's not going to go on forever. Right. And there are going to be things that we lose along the way, including people we love. So there's this tragedy that we are given as a birthright. Mm. And I always say that comedy is what we invented as a species to cope with that. And um, I remember Woody Allen's, I know I'm branching off here a moment, but Woody Allen uh, made a film called Interiors, and it was his attempt to make a very serious uh, film, and it was very much a a kind of a Bergman, Ingmar uh, Bergman type of film. Okay. And and, And because he was trying to say to the world, I can make something other than a silly comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, he allowed not one iota of humor into oh, the geez. story. And as I'm watching it about a third of the way in, I said, you know, this is unnatural. It is mm-hmm. unnatural. Even in Hamlet, there is a grave digger who's funny. And Hamlet himself has a, a kind of dry wit. Right. He gets some pretty good one-liners. Um, uh, he says that the funeral baked meats did uh, furnish the uh, wedding, uh, cold, the cold wedding buffet, basically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one, <laughs> right. The funeral of his father uh, was followed hard upon by the wedding of his mother. And he says, mm. no, it was it was thrift. It's thrift because that way the the the, meat, the hot, warm food at the at the funeral can uh, be served in the morning <laughs> as a buffet. So that's Hamlet being funny within a tragic situation. Right. And but I thought, how can I? How can I make sure that in telling this story and and doing this very silly thing, which is to say, well, I think there's a way I can complete a story that's gone unfinished for 100 years, mm-hmm. um, and that t- Charles Dickens died in the writing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a way we can finish it. What a silly notion to do. Um, how can I make that be entertaining as well as kind of challenging and interesting and full of bravura emotion and passion? And I, I, I thought to myself, well, um, the idea came to me all in, in one day, and I wrote the words Victorian vaudeville um, at the okay. top of a page. And I thought to myself, what if I don't, what if I do not attempt to write Rupert Holmes's 1985 version of okay. Charles Dickens' novel? Right. What if instead I have a motley musical company? who are absolute hams and live only to steal a scene <laughs> in 1895. And they've picked up the unfinished novel, which is set some 30 years earlier okay. and put it in a music hall where, yes, they are going to play all the blood and thunder moments to the very best of their ability. They're going to take all the melodrama and, and, and make it far from mellow. They're going to make it very intense. Mm. Um, and, but at the same time, it's a little funny that they're trying to do this thing at all. Oh, and yeah. let me put a chairman in charge who talks with the audience from the outset. We break the fourth wall instantly. And let me have the, the first number sung by a, a person who could easily be um, the uh, tormented hero in a Gilbert and Sullivan novel, John Jasper, mm-hmm. and have him do exactly what Gilbert and Sullivan used to do so well. And this this gets us, uh, I'm going to get back to that in a second. But, Absolutely, but, yeah. Okay. But the idea was uh, in the mystery of Edwin Drood uh, that that um, that uh, I, I thought to myself, OK, so as a composer, let me not say it's 1985, which is when I wrote it. Mm-hmm. And you're a guy who's been a singer songwriter for about 10 years and written for Streisand and all like that. Now, what are you going to write? How are you going to continue that vein of writing? Uh, and instead, imagine that 
via time travel, you were portaled back to 1895, and now you find yourself in 1895 mm. um, as the resident composer for this music hall company, this motley crew, and uh, not my current motley crew, the old motley crew. And, uh, and how would I write for them without getting burned at the stake because of all the things that I know that have gone on in music since 1895? Right. How can okay. I write in that milieu? And I thought, well, 1895, you know, you, Gilbert and Sullivan were still writing their last operettas. Mm -hmm. And as it happens, the ultimate fate of the mystery of Edwin Drood, my musical, was that it ended up debuting in London uh, after it uh, was um, um, uh, a hit on Broadway. Mm -hmm. It debuted in London at the Savoy Theatre, which wow. is where Gilbert and Sullivan debuted all of their great musicals after um, Pirates of Penzance. Wow. And so there I was in the very kind of venue that I was imagining trying to write for in 1985, when I'm saying, how can I write back to 1895? And so wow. I basically said, well, why don't you approach it as if you're sort of an admirer of Gilbert and Sullivan, which you are, mm -hmm. and you're going to try to fit this story and the kind of music you want to write, modern music you'd like to write, but do it translated into Gilbert and Sullivan terms, write what at least for the first initial part of the show, write what Gilbert and Sullivan would have been allowed to write harmonically. Remember, this okay. is before Ravel, this is before Ravel, this is before Debussy, this is before the big band era, this is mm. before modern jazz. So you have a vocabulary that is, Sullivan was um, a deft, uh, and I don't mean deft, D-E-A-F, I mean D-E-F-T. Mm -hmm. He was a deft composer and he could stretch his harmonic structure, um, as, as well as most people of his time, but he was not a groundbreaker harmonically. Most of his stuff was very acceptable, very proper, and a lot of it is more in the tradition, nature of Handel and uh, sometimes even Bach, Mendelssohn. Um, mm -hmm. So can you write through that filter, at least for the first third of the show? And okay. so um, one of my favorite things about Gilbert and Sullivan that I loved was that often a character would step onto the stage and with no preamble, just they'd feel that it was appropriate for them to explain to you exactly who they are and how they got to where they are right this moment. Right. And that <laughs> you do so well in Drood. There are so many of those moments. Well, it was there. HMS Pinafore starts, uh, as my brother was uh, pointed out very adroitly in, in, in the chapter we co-wrote, um, they basically after the opening number of here we are men at sea is mm -hmm. over three people come out and one after another and they both say here's who i am here's how i got to where i am this is what i'm about now let's see what happens oh, it's right. you know bertolt brecht would probably not think that this was a good idea or maybe actually he'd probably think it's a fabulous idea but but that's what they did and so for example the first song that we really hear after the opening number, There You Are, in The Mystery of Edwin Drood, mm -hmm. uh, they, we introduce Clive Padgett as John Jasper. John Jasper is brooding very much, and uh, the audience applause. He immediately drops his brooding mode, takes a bow, and then drops back into character, and then sings this song called A Man Could Go Quite Mad, which could be a Gilbert and Sullivan song. Oh, absolutely. About the, about the, quant uh, the, uh, the dark chords of it. Um, uh, to me, evoke um, uh, the uh, aria "Am I Alone and Unobserved" from Patience, mm. uh, in, in which someone's going to sing a relatively lighthearted song, but it begins with great uh, f uh, molto furioso. It's very the strings are 
uh, arpeggiating away like crazy. Mm. And um, uh, it, it said, so I wrote a typical GNS revelation song uh, whereby a character arrives and immediately confides for some reason he, why he's telling us this and feels free <laughs> to tell us this. And, and who are we, by the way, at the moment as he's telling us this? Because what are all the other people on stage doing? Um, mm. But he, they tell you, um, he tells you uh, about the current state he's in. Buttercup says, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. The captain says, this is my station and this is what kind of fellow I am. Don't you all agree? And then out comes Sir Joseph Porter, who then tells you the entire story of his life and how he got to the exact exalted position he's in right now. Right. There so, we go. That I mean, that whole the first third of that show is just people telling us who absolutely. they are. Yeah, I love that. And in their next show, here comes the modern major general. And what's the first thing oh. he does? He tells you what he is. And he in, does it in a delightful way. Yeah, yeah. Which saves us a lot of exposition. I'm, you know, instead of telling us how we got into this position where we're robbing a bank, let's just have the bank robber step forward and explain this, give us the story of his life in three minutes. And even to a point where they've got, you know, the ensemble just tagging on to, and we yeah. are his, yeah. what, cousins we and his sisters just, and his aunts? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, 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 they are there. You know, in, in Japan, it, there used to be this strange thing where uh, I did a lot, uh, had a number of hit records in Japan, and mm. I would do a lot of TV over there. And there would be one person who would host the show, usually because of the times, it was a man. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman at his side who was um, his co-host. But okay. because of the way genders were considered in the 1980s uh, in, in Japan, her sole job seemed to be to affirm everything that the man just said. So he would go, she'd go, and I thought that's her only job is to stand there and say, what he's saying is true. I agree. And that's and 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 Gilbert and Sullivan do that uh, constantly where both men and women. Yes, you are the captain of the pinafore and we agree. Yes, you're very big. You know, with every, a chorus is there to confirm what you've just said. There we <laughs> go. He is the very course. model of a modern major general. Yeah, yes. there we go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 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 they, they repeat it three times. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, each, uh, whatever he says he is, they say, well, we'll we'll echo that three times and confirm it. And uh, it would be a lovely thing if in life we could have a bunch of people come around wherever we go <laughs> and they would say, that's right. He sure is uh, uh, executive of the year. So <laughs> a wonderful thing. should we should we be bringing that back in musical theater? You think that idea of these immediate affirmations? <laughs> I don't you know what? I, 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 let me do that. OK, okay. I'll, I'll do okay. that in all my shows and I'll be the one doing something that silly. Um, it's, but it, it, but it, it's, um, it was, it's a wonderful device in lots of ways. Um, mm. he, uh, uh, Gilbert would have spouted out a ton of information in a verse and it would be clever. It would rhyme. The rhymes would be in, ingenious. Uh, the payoff of the verse would be some kind of delightful spin on something. And then almost as if to give us a moment to rest. Mm -hmm. The chorus steps in and echoes stuff that we do as uh, uh, that we don't really need to pay any attention to because it's just repeating what was said. It's almost like a couple of breathers in between each time you're assaulted in a patter song by the next verse that comes along. It's a, it it mm -hmm. works very well. So they were very um, audience friendly. They 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 really it, it reached out to their audience and tried to make it easy for them to follow their 
dazzling minds, both of them. So, and I promise, because, you know, you have this huge body of work. We're not just going to talk about Drood, um, but this book is, uh, and this podcast, uh, one of the key audiences uh, is going to be students of musical theater. So I do feel like it warrants talking about Drood. Just, okay. it doesn't no get problem. its own chapter You've in never, this No objection on this, on this end of it. Beautiful. But <laughs> so you've got, you know, you've got the patter songs in there. You've yep. got the I am songs in there mm-hmm. and you've got this music hall style going on. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, the music hall that's contemporary with Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, but they are like you talked about, it's a little more what they're doing highbrow. It's a little more refined. What is their opinion of the music hall? Do you imagine what is their relationship to the music hall, the English vaudeville of their day? Uh, when you say there, who is the they? Uh, who who is the they? Uh, sorry, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. What would their uh, uh, attitude be towards the music hall? Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So, in order to do, you know, when you're hopefully a creative person there's what you want to do and then there's the um rationale for it okay so um i wasn't going to do an entire show without delving into some of the kind of harmonies and chromatics uh, the chromaticism that i love um certain sections of of the mystery of edwin drew um musicians come to me and strangle me because they they, we change (laughs) The key changes every two bars, and if you don't have a key signature to refer to, uh, it's hard to keep track of what, who's sharp and who is flat at a certain mm. point. It's actually a very difficult score, even though it sounds like it's a lot of fun. It, uh, piano mm-hmm. players come at me a lot and say, "Could could you have just given me a couple of put on a happy face?" Songs? Yeah, yeah, that this um, doesn't sound surprising. I'm sure to anyone who knows the sound of this show, that doesn't sound surprising at all. Yeah. But what I did is, so the, the uh, Gilbert and I stretch a little bit. In other words, the music hall sound that I am evoking is v- quite late Victorian mm-hmm. into into what we think of in America as the as vaudeville. So the the music hall royale might have existed, but it probably wouldn't have been quite as showy. Okay. Uh, as as what I, I I was not going to not acknowledge the rest of musical theater history when I'm writing in 1985, right? And only limit myself to 1895. Mm. So what I did the the rule that I made was this: up until there's an, a a scene in the mystery of Edwin Drood where Jasper has a, an opium dream, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a ballet that goes with it, and until that moment in the show most of what I composed could have been part of Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, style. It would have not, if it, if, if mo- maybe Moonfall, Moonfall stretches it a little bit because Moonfall goes into a kind of passionate bridge that is not harmonically part of the Gilbert and Sullivan vocabulary. Mm. But I, I, I had two rules. One is that emotion, when some emotion became, when especially romantic emotion or, or dark, sinister emotion, when that was overtaking a character, I let that break some rules of Gilbert and Sullivan and could dial in 
some more modern touches because I'm not saying it's modern. I'm saying it's just they're going way out there on a either a romantic limb or on a um, psychotic limb. Okay. Uh, and the 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 thing that clinched the deal for me is the opium uh, ballet, o- opium den ballet in the mystery of Edward Drood, because he's hallucinating. And in the novel, he's hallucinating and seeing all kinds of strange Asian processions and um, and 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 so I thought, well, he's hearing the music of the spheres. That can be any music in the world. I can break all the rules in that mm-hmm. ballet. And because I'm not writing in 1895, I'm not writing in 1985. I'm writing inside his head, and it's delu- and he's it's surreal and 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 delusional. And in the ballet. I allowed myself to write anything that I wanted to write um, in the vocabulary, the, the, the harmonic vocabulary that I had access to having being alive in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. After that, I felt I, I had broken the ice and could deal in some other flavors. So there's a song called Never the Luck, um, which is really a Richard Rogers type of waltz. And it, it also that I was just thinking about totally turns the I am a trope on its head kind of oh absolutely absolutely and and where uh, wherein i was able to make the actor singing the song have the same dilemma that the character he's portraying has and mm-hmm. so that when they when, when they both when when bazard sings never the luck he's singing on his own behalf and he's singing on behalf of the character i'm sorry when philip back sings never the luck he's singing as two people so it's not only an i am it's a we are and okay the, and I also do that in both sides of the coin, where um, John Jasper is singing about the, his dual uh, personality, and mm. the chairman is singing about the fact that he's having to play two roles in the show. He's having to be the chairman, but he's also having to play the mayor of uh, of, of um, uh, Cloistrum. And so each of them are suffering with their own duality. So you have a duet for two people singing about being four people. Uh, so it, there are a lot of games like that going on in Drood. But the second I realized that I would cast um edwin drood i would have edwin drood be played uh by a woman who is a male impersonator i thought oh the glorious thing about that is i can write a gilbert and sullivan like lyrical duet love duet but it will be the first love duet of its nature ever written for two sopranos Mm. in 19 even in 1985 we did not have love songs for two sopranos in love with each other uh but uh now that wouldn't be uh, out of the ordinary at all but back then that was a a rule breaker too um anyway to get way back to your your question um i think that gilbert and sullivan would have enjoyed going to a music hall okay i think they would have enjoyed the the rowdiness of it and Mm. the sentimentality of it and i think that they allowed those that's that to seep into their own work but i think they would have viewed their own work as um serious fun as opposed to musical would have been shameless fun okay. uh, so so um i have a song called the wages of sin that's sung mm-hmm. by puffer and she sings about how poor bad her life is that is the it is really patterned after songs from the english musical like she was poor but she was honest these heartbreaking songs about girls who fell into the wrong way of life, uh, mm. left at the altar, betrayed, uh, all that. And Gilbert and Sullivan, I think, did not mind uh, mining that type of song for their own songs like I'm Called Little Buttercup, uh, uh, confessional songs that they would have characters sing. 
Mm. Uh, but I don't think they would have viewed themselves as writing for music hall. They would think that music hall was, that was completely populist art of the people pub, just slightly above pub sing, pub shows, you know? Okay. Um, so, so I let both worlds kind of coexist side by side by setting a Gilbert and Sullivan style work in um, a tatty music hall where anything goes. And uh, if it gets a laugh, um, we're keeping it in the show. So, okay. so I, 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 I think that Gilbert and Sullivan would have had a lot of fun going to a music hall and might have sung along with some of the songs and thought, you know, we could do something like that in one of our shows, one of our proper shows, one okay. of our well thought out, one of our well thought out shows, one of our beautifully orchestrated shows, not with a an accordion and a and a piano. You right, know? but there there is that influence there. That's not something that you that you had to invent. Okay. Yep. 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 So we've got. Gilbert and Sullivan, who sort of are predecessors to a long line of these duos who are writing musical theater, who are creating musical theater, all the way to Rodgers and Hammerstein, to mm-hmm. Aarons and Flaherty, to Lerner and Lowe, whoever you love, you know, there were all these mm-hmm. duos. Yep. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit to us about uh, your role as book writer for another great duo of uh, Kendra and Ebb on Curtains. Uh, you know, it's Candor uh, 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 himself. Um, first of all, I, I, uh, one of the great joys of my life was mm. uh, was to to work with John Candor and Fred Ebb. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, on, on the opening night of the mystery of Edwin Drood, before Drood, Edwin Drood went to Broadway, Mm-hmm. Um, it ran at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. It was every year um, there's free Shakespeare in, in, in Central Park in New York City. And um, and Joe Papp said, this year you're going to be Shakespeare uh, to wow. me. And we the, and the very first performance of The Mystery of Edwin Drood in Central Park, the, it was a huge, um, went over, went over very, very well. Great. And, 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 but I'm leading the point is as I'm standing there loving what's happening in front of me, the audience cheering and, and, and all the mechanics of the show work somehow, mm-hmm. um, uh, suddenly I'm assaulted by somebody. Someone's beating me with their fists, beating me. And I turn and it's John Cander, John Cander, composer of Cabaret, Chicago, uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, uh, the song New York, New York my coloring book and he's hitting me he's pummeling me with his fists and he shakes me he said you did it and he said he said musical theater there's no money in it but isn't it wonderful and i thought you're john candor if there's no money in music, oh no oh, no <laughs> yeah so we had a, a very pleasant acquaintance um acquaintanceship uh and uh i was um they finally turned to me and asked me to take a look at um, something they'd been working on for years, um, which was their attempt to write a murder mystery musical. Mm. And, um, and uh, I've always felt that um, my own background as a composer and a lyricist makes me different from the majority of book writers that are out there. Okay. Because I think most book writers, whether they want to or not, there's a, a slight tendency for them to think of 
the composing team, the songwriting team, as those people who inter constantly interrupt the wonderful play they're writing. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, I would have a hit. I would have a, a Pulitzer Prize winning play here if you didn't keep writing songs. Throwing in these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas I, I like to think that unlike some book writers, mm -hmm. I know where I need to get the characters so that there would be no reason for the book to continue because they will have to say what they have to say in song. Okay. I, I, in other words, I, it's, it's like saying you can lead a horse to water so that he, the horse finds the perfect place to drink. Okay. I, you know what I'm saying? There's an yeah. expression. You can't lead a horse. To, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I think just the opposite. I'm trying to get the characters, the story, the situation to a point where only a song, where only people bursting out into 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 vocalizing their emotions. That's the only next step that could be possible. And that is the right. goal of, in a musical. That the, the characters have to get to a point. And I, this is a rule that someone. Uh, codified years ago and uh, I, I, I should know whom, but I don't. But mm. it's simply that you get to a point where their emotions are so strong that they have to burst into song. And um, and so I like to think as a book writer, I am, um, I'm, I, I have a great uh, um, desire to enable the songwriters rather than say, okay, now you take over. I'll just go in the other room and have a cigarette, you know? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, so in terms of writing with uh, other people, I am always uh, uh, other songwriters. I am always thinking, what would they love to write? What situation can I get the characters into where they would get the mm. chance to write um, just the right song, a song that they might not have otherwise written. Um, okay. And I, 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 for example, um, wrote a musical um, with Alan Zachary and uh, Michael Weiner called Secondhand Lions. And there's, uh, I invented a subplot um, out of sort of Arabian Nights where there's the Sultan, except that I decided that the Sultan should not be a bloodthirsty Sultan. He should be the most articulate, erudite character in the show because he's had an mm -hmm. Oxford education. And so while he's fighting the man from the, uh, from the French Foreign Legion, he should be 20 times as intelligent as the okay. foreign French and I said so so I'm gonna have him come out and he's got to say here's my empire and unfortunately all I have to export is sand and you should write a Gilbert and Sullivan Patter song at this point and go into all the problems even when the only natural resource you have is sand and how you have to become a mastermind of crime simply to keep your nation fed and um, they wrote a song that I uh, called Sand. It's a fantastic song and which I don't think they would have written if I hadn't led them up that hopefully not blind alley. Um, okay. So when you when you work with uh, other songwriting teams, the, the idea is to say uh, the thought is what are the what do they do uh, better than anyone as, as a songwriting a songwriter or a songwriting team? And how can you draw that out of them? How can you set them up perfectly? Kind of like the, you know, in uh, every year the All-Star Game, there's a thing called the Home Run Derby. Mm -hmm. And it's it's where people see who can hit the most home runs. Well, it requires a pitcher being willing to say, where do you like the pitch? Right. And 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 the, and the batter will say, you got to give it to me right about there and throw it about, you know, the faster you throw it, the harder I can hit it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a, an agreement between the pitcher. This would not happen if it was a game 
where the outcome of the game was at stake. But instead, it's just a, 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 an attempt to see how many home runs someone can hit. So my job is one of the jobs I have as a book writer is mm -hmm. to ask the songwriting team or to intuit of the songwriting team, where do you like the pitch thrown? Where do you want me to set you up so that you can hit more home runs than you've ever hit before? The the most the happiest collaboration I ever had as a book writer was with Marvin Hamish. Um, I wrote a musical with him called The Nutty Professor, and mm -hmm. because of the death of Marvin and because of the death of Jerry Lewis, upon whose movie uh, it was based, the legal rights to it have been kind of hung up for a dozen years. It's oh, finally wow. it's finally coming clear, and we're finally going to have a production of it soon. Oh, and amazing! Yeah, I'm very excited about it. And in this case, I was the book writer, but I was also Marvin Hamlish's lyricist. And half okay. the time, I would write him patter lyrics, knowing that he, like Arthur Sullivan, would always come up with a tuneful way to treat my pre-existing comic lines. Mm. Uh, because it might be interesting to your listeners to know that in most cases, the majority of cases, vast majority of cases, Sullivan wrote music to fit um, Gilbert's lyrics. Uh, it was not two men in a room saying, oh, well, what about this for a next line? And what about that? And what about that? Uh, Gilbert would write basically the libretto. He'd write the script, but also the lyrics, send it to Sullivan. And Sullivan would say, well, how can I make this musical? How can I take these? And luckily, Gilbert wrote in such a beautifully rhythmic way, and his, his, his mm -hmm. rhythms were so precise, that a good, a great composer like Sullivan could manage to to do wonderful things, even with the precondition that whatever you write musically has to fit the scan of 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 these lyrics. Uh, mm. But in, in, in so in the case of writing with Mar uh, Marvin Hamlish, uh, there were instances where I said this is going to be a passionate song. It's a song called uh, "While I Still Have the Time." I said, "Why don't you write?" We know what the title is. We know that the first line of the chorus is going to be "And while I still have the time." We know that why don't you just compose what you want to compose and and let that speak and i'll be saddled with the job of saying okay to express the sentiment in words i'm going to have to hang them like Chris ornaments on a christmas tree i'm going to have to make it fit oh, your beautiful but then on other other times we'd have a song where i knew it was going to be a, a kind of a patter song a comedy song mm -hmm. and it was going to require an awful lot of lyrics and i said so shall i just how about i write the lyric and you'll set it to music with some composers, especially some not talented composers, <laughs> that's very hard to do. They can only write what they're going to write. Right. Uh, a good composer can look and say, "Okay, so it goes da 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 the workflow, the way it goes, whether you have the songwriting team or with the book writer involved. And I'm thinking of, you know, famously Lerner and Lowe said, we start with the title, you know, which you just kind of hit upon doing mm -hmm. once with Marvin Hamlish, you know, that yep. we're just going to start not with the music, not with the lyrics. We're going to start with the title, the key line of the song, which obviously with Learn and Low has given us some of the most famous standards of all time, you know? Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about where, because it sounds like whenever you work on a show, 
Gilbert and Sullivan and their influence are certainly coming into the room with you, whether you are doing it all, whether you are the book writer for a songwriting team, whether you're doing the lyrics, it just sounds like you're bringing them in with you. Uh, where do they sit in the room with you when you're working on your pop music, when you're working on things that are not directly for musical theater, for musical comedy? Well, Gilbert and Sullivan sit on thrones Oh, beautiful! Okay. And, and and I'm on and I'm on my knees. Genuinely. Okay. Um, but but um, but um, look, there are um, there are many influence. They are not the only composer, composer songwriting team that ever uh, affected my work. My work mm -hmm. was very very influenced by Rodgers and Hart. Not so much mm -hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein, but Rodgers and Hart. Hart was one of the most not not making a pun here. He was a heartbreaking lyricist. He he oh. could write. He could write lyrics that, that just are, wound you. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Uh, you told me I was mistaken that I'd awaken with the sun and order orange juice for one. It never entered my mind. I mean, you know how do you, you have what I lack myself, and now I have to scratch. Now I even have to scratch my back myself. Um, so just wonderful lyricist. So mm -hmm. a lot of people walk in the room. It is interesting to me that. Um, you know, long before I recorded a song, I wrote and recorded a song called Escape, which is known as the Pina Colada song, which is unfortunately my best known song. Um, <laughs> and it is a story song. And mm -hmm. Gilbert and Sullivan had lots of good story songs. Um, uh, but uh, interestingly, the song that got my career as a singer songwriter uh, started was a, I was supposed to record a couple of bubblegum type singles as a non-existent group, I had been doing a, a batch of that in my early twenties, mm -hmm. where I would be the voice, I would be a voice, the voice of a group that didn't exist, and singing a song that someone had hired me to sing, and okay. or something written with me. And I decided, you know, if you don't write a song, record a song, uh, even though this contract is supposed to be for very, very mindless stuff, um, you've got to record a song that you can say, well, if you want to know anything I stood for in the seventies. Uh, this is this is what I was about. And I wrote a song called Terminal. And it starts by a person saying, here I am this morning um, uh, in this terminal where where um, the buses arrive. And he narrates who he is and how he got to where he is now and where that has left him. It's a, it, 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 it wasn't a it was a huge hit record in the Philippines, by the way. If you go there, they oh. I, I sell out. But uh, it, <laughs> This, this the song Terminal, when I was all done with it, I thought, well, that's interesting. This is almost a poignant version of a Gilbert and Sullivan. Here's who I am. Here's what I did to get to where I am. And here's the fate I'm stuck with. And I thought that's interesting that that, that they really did. The, the record label heard that song and said, we don't want you to do this as an anonymous pop group. We want you to do an album like this. And oh, wow. we want to be Rupert Holmes. And so that actually landed me my first LP deal and out of that barbara streisand heard the album and said i want to record your songs and i want you to come out here and arrange and conduct them so but that first song was the one that sort of turned the trick and it was because i wrote a song where a person steps out and without introduction or preamble says here i am this morning where love had asked for the dance here within this terminal where i passed on the chance um and uh and so they've had a, a huge influence in a lot of my career, I think in terms of um, musical theater, mm -hmm. uh, their influence remains pretty much 
their strongest influence is when people want a Gilbert and Sullivan moment in their okay. show, whether or not, and usually it's some sort of a send up or spoof, but um, I make the point in the chapter uh, in, uh, in, in the book that, um, that, you know, that they invented, they sort of anticipated rap and that Henry Higgins would probably not have said, why can't the English teach their children how to speak if Gilbert and Sullivan hadn't told people that a person in a musical can speak the way Henry Higgins is now speaking. Mm. Um, I know that sounds rather convoluted, but they, they, they made a lot of things possible. You certainly see their influence in anytime you watch a Danny Kaye movie, there mm -hmm. will be a patter song in it. Mm -hmm. uh, written by his wife, Sylvia Fine, a song like Anatole of Paris. And it is really a, 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 an updated version of what uh, Gilbert and Sullivan would have supplied for Danny Kaye. So um, the there, you know, we a lot has other a lot of other elements have come into musical theater, which make it the world that we now know. Right. Um, I don't know what Gilbert and Sullivan would have made of West Side Story. I don't know what they would have made of that. They, I, I think Sullivan would have been envious of the score. Um, I think Gilbert Certainly. would have said, "I think Gilbert would have said the only funny song is Officer Krupke. What? what <laughs> <laughs> how can I do a song tonight? Tonight won't be just any night. What? What's that? Anyone can mm. write that. Um, so, um, uh, but but they they facilitated the idea that people will have a moment. I mean. I wonder when I should know the answer to this. I should know more about Shakespearean history. But when Hamlet comes out alone mm -hmm. on the ramparts of of his of the castle, mm -hmm. and suddenly says to himself, because it's supposed to be a soliloquy, uh, "To be or not to be, that is the question." I wonder how common it was prior to Shakespeare. And probably the answer is common, very common. But the idea that somebody comes out on a stage and talks to themselves sort of with the knowledge, it, with an understanding between the actor and the audience that the, the character kind of senses someone is out there listening to what they're, uh, what of their feelings they're exposing. It's, uh, it, it, it's just, there are moments in 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 artistic history where people make decisions and you never think about them for example there was a moment probably in during the making of the film king kong where somebody said i think we should have music playing underneath all these action sequences mm. and someone probably i think someone once raised the question won't the audience wonder where the orchestra is i mean we're in the middle of the jungle here comes king kong he's going to wrestle with a dinosaur where's the orchestra i don't understand where the string section just came from it was this transition from days when movies had musical accompaniment because they were silent so something had to fill that awkward right. and yet suddenly now we have sound well when sound first came in it was not automatically assumed that there would be underscore that there would be musical underscore below the dialogue mm. and in the early silent pictures uh, sorry in the early talkies they are they talk but right. they don't play music underneath. And sometimes if there was music, it was they were saying, well, you know, we're, we have sound movies now, so we can do anything. So they would have a string quartet play in the next room. But it was what we call source music, meaning it's music supposedly coming from the, the image you're seeing on screen. Mm -hmm. But somebody at some point said, um, uh, you know, why don't we just put music underneath the whole movie? 
And the audience knows there's no orchestra there, but it's exciting. It's more exciting when we do that. Well, I'm saying that Gilbert and Sullivan sort of, if they didn't invent, they sort of nailed permanently the idea that a character can come out on stage and say, am I alone and unobserved? I am. Then let me confess, I'm an aesthetic sham. Mm. And then sing all about it. Now, now, so who's that person talking to? Am I alone and unobserved? I am. So I, so let me confess, I am an aesthetic sham. So who's he confessing to? Himself. But it's with the wink at the audience that we know you're there. And I know you, I, the character, sort of know you're there. I know somebody's paying attention to this and caring about my plight. And, uh, and so there are a lot of those theatrical conventions that Gilbert and Sullivan came up with um, that we now just, we don't even think about them. We don't think it's we don't think that it's odd that suddenly everybody sings territory folks should stick together territory folks <laughs> all cows. right Rant there we go a, no excuse me i was talking here why are you all shouting <laughs> and this, we, this, i was saying sisters and his cousins and his aunts there yeah, we go exactly, yeah. exactly. there we go and, but by the time it got uh, by the time that um rogers and hammerstein said you know um this this uh this this story about oklahoma might be a success and it might be an even better success if we wrote a song called oklahoma which was one of the last <laughs> songs written for the musical oklahoma apparently they were watching the show in previews and hammerstein turned to rogers and said you know we better have a song called oklahoma <laughs> <laughs> and then they wrote it but anyway um we don't notice it anymore when when uh, People say there is nothing like a dame, in, uh, uh, and they all agree with each other. Right. Um, but but I, I'm not saying that certainly these were operatic conventions that existed well before Gilbert and Sullivan. In terms of our perception of what musical theater uh, can be, um, they sure laid out a beautiful playing board for us. You know, it's mm -hmm. like somebody, whoever it was that decided that there should be a secret passage from the billiard, from the study to the library in the board game of Clue, that person was a genius. They, the person who decided there's a ballroom and this, and oh, we'll put secret password. So someone hands us a board, and most of the thinking has been done for us. We just have to move Colonel Mustard uh, uh, into the room that contains the the, the, the wrench. Right. You know? Right. Okay, I'm pre-associating here like crazy. <laughs> no, that's that's excellent. That's beautiful. No, and I mean, it's like you said, even if Shakespeare is not the inventor of the soliloquy, when we talk about the soliloquy, the first thing that comes to mind is going to be this great speech to be or not to be. So even if Gilbert and Sullivan aren't inventing these conventions, the great examples of them are in their finest works, are in yeah. their earliest works. And uh, I think any listeners who are not familiar with the works of Rupert Holmes as well, even though we don't have a chapter here about uh, your musicals, I would definitely encourage people to check them out. I personally think there are lyrics. I think there are moments. I think there are musical motifs that Gilbert and Sullivan, if I may say so, would be jealous of. I think there's so much wit going on here that they are something that we should be studying when we talk about key musicals as well. So thank you so much, Rupert, for joining us today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're, you're very kind. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your knowledge of uh, of some of the things I've done. I really, that's uh, very nice. Thank Absolutely. you. It's been a lot of fun talking about these people. Really, I'm, I'm so glad. And to our listeners, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about HMS Pinafore, please also review the links in the below description. 
I am Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.